Hey, this live podcast, episode number 17, is a big one. How do you turn your strength into speed? If you're training for basketball, hopefully you are training with weights and you are getting stronger. But what do you need to do as the season approaches to convert that strength into speed and explosiveness on the basketball court? Coach Sean and I, in this episode, we cover five ways, five strategies that you can apply to take that strength that you have developed during the offseason and make it into speed, literally transfer that strength into speed. I hope you enjoy this episode. Please listen intently and apply these practices into your training. You will see results quickly. I guarantee it. Enjoy. All right, we are now live on uh, Facebook, Elite Training for Basketball group. Welcome, Coach Sean. How are you? Um, fantastic. How are we doing? Very good. I'm hitting my volume here. Yeah, this is a great show. How do you turn your strength into speed? Um, as strength coaches, you and I, exactly. Um, I'm, I'm itching to do this one. I'm itching to do it. It's, it's going to be a blast. Um, there are changes even in the names of what people call us from strength coaches now to performance coaches because so much is focused on speed performance all that type of stuff so I mean I mean this is just exactly in our wheelhouse what we want to do and you as athletes as basketball players listening man this is something that you need if you're faster than your opponent there's a really good chance that you're going to beat them uh, on the scoreboard so man how do you turn strength into speed but first Sean I want to see your 40 time move the camp. No, I'm just kidding. But hey, how's your training going? I know you do a lot of Olympic lifting, which we're going to talk about today. Um, what's going on with your training? I'd like to hear about it. I'd like to hear from you. Uh, training's going really well. Um, man, I got a little bit more volume to my intensity. So okay. higher weights and higher reps this last couple of weeks. So I'm getting, I'm getting some good training, getting some, getting buried a little bit. Hopefully I you're um, getting your sleep uh yeah <laughs> something i can always improve on right i mean i'm getting about seven hours a night but i'm i'm trying to shoot for eight or nine i think uh with some schedule changes and adjustments i can make that happen but i'm getting a solid seven pretty much nightly right uh it started did a little jujitsu training uh last week so that. yeah i went to my buddy's jujitsu class i think i'm gonna go back this week it's kind of a, a little bit different than the heavy speed strength sports a little bit more tactical a little bit more uh endurance a little bit more isometric pulling and holding positions and kind of a chess match while you're grappling so it's kind of a, a fun change of pace i uh i did <clears throat> uh brazilian jiu-jitsu for just a little bit just under a year um right after well right during college like I, I avoided the basketball season didn't tell my coach about it um and it was a blast my my, my best memory my older brother did it with me and he's about four years older than me. And I remember, uh, uh, got him to tap out in one of the little, you know, sparring sessions. I was like, tapped out my older brother. That was great. That's a win for all younger brothers. <laughs> I'm a younger brother. Um, my training, you're actually going to see a video today in this podcast, in this show from, um, my training actually today I'm in a week two. I started a new phase last week and I do a AB uh, split. So um, I do uh, a week was last week, B week is this week, and then I'll repeat it for two or three more cycles. And so um, uh, everything's new this week, everything's hurting, everything's aching, lots of soreness, um, lots of fun. Today was a, just, you'll see it just really powerful, really big, really explosive um, that ironically, and this was not planned, ties exactly into what we're going to talk about today. So so I just pulled up the video and, and we'll, we'll check it out. But my training's going great. Knees aching a little bit. Um, I messed it up over Christmas break, but it's still coming back. And, and, uh, and I feel good. I feel good. Like you, I get, I get seven hours solid every night, sometimes seven and a half, maybe 745. Um, uh, but yeah, what podcast number is this? I think we're on number 17. Is that what we're doing? Ooh, that's a great number for February. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Number 17 today, uh, how to turn your strength into speed. Um, so let's go right into it, Sean. I'm going to share my screen. And this is really what we're going to be talking about today. So 
you have the force velocity curve and up here you have absolute strength. This is someone just really grinding, lifting up a heavy deadlift, so to speak, uh, heavy deadlift and, and he's not moving very fast or she's not moving very fast versus the very other end is you have that, you think about like a sprinter coming on the blocks, right? It's just boom and they're going. Um, uh, but if we're talking barbell speed, we wanna have a 1.5 meter per second velocity of the bar. And so um, we're talking, uh, so let me back up. When we're talking about changing and converting our strength into speed, a lot of people use the term strength speed and they use it in conjunction uh, or in uh, uh, as the same way they use speed strength. But as you can see, these are totally different things. Um, and I'm sure you've heard people mention these terms and use them interchangeably, when in reality, strength speed, if you look at the first word, strength speed focuses on the strength side of things, moving as uh, heavy an object as fast as possible. Speed strength focuses on the speed, moving something as fast as possible, but with as much weight as possible. And I know if English is your second language, it might be a little difficult to understand. So just understand that speed, uh, strength speed uh, is a little bit slower of a movement focusing on the strength, speed strength, a little bit faster of a movement focusing on the speed side of things. So a lot of the stuff that we talk about today, we'll, we will be talking about speed strength, higher velocities, uh, manipulating a little bit less weight, but overcoming uh, and improving on our velocity of movement. Um, and since this is kind of the, the kickoff for what we're gonna talk about, Sean, jump in. What, what, what do you think of when you look at this graph? Um, yeah, I like this graph a lot. Um, this graph is the force velocity curve. So when we're training athletes, this is what we're using as our predictors and our goals for training. So uh, we can use this curve. We can test along this curve. I can test your heavy. I can test your fast. I can see where you need to make improvements. Um, I mean, as general athletes, depending on the sport, we might determine that the sport movement requires a specific point on this graph. So if I'm doing sport specific training, I can do speed specific training to the action of your sport. For instance, if you're a baseball player and you throw a baseball for a job, I'm probably going to train you the majority of your training uh, closer to that speed strength or speed. So I have velocity coming off. It's a really light implement. I don't need yeah. a lot of strength to throw something light. And on the contrast, if I'm a power lifter or another type of strength athlete, or I'm a grappler and I'm using heavier loads or resistances in my sport, I know that those qualities are going to be more closely related to my sport. So this lets us use um, your sport characteristics based on your sport uh, as a better mechanism of training. So we can, we want to ideally to be a well-rounded athlete. We want to train along this whole curve. I want to train along the whole force velocity curve. I want to increase all my velocities and I want to increase all my forces. So if I do a good job training, my graph goes up and to the right. So everything gets heavier, everything gets faster and everything gets stronger. So if you were to plot this, I could have velocity at the bottom in meters per second. I'd have force along the top, either in Newtons or pounds. And if I'm a better athlete, I'm moving more weight and faster. So I've yeah. shown that my power, my speed and my strength have all improved. Um, so that's what we're looking at with this force velocity curve. It also follows physics, right? Something very heavy is on the high force side, which is also the low velocity side. So physics right. would tell us something heavy is not gonna move fast and something very light will move fast. And so this plays into just the, the practicality of training with weights and things like that. And so um, we wanna train along the whole curve, but we can use this curve very specifically to target and pinpoint specifics in our training uh, to target specific goals. So that's kind of what this graph means. It's, it's uh, representative of a lot of the stuff, but um, yeah, we find most athletes left to their own devices probably only train one side of this, right? So we're, we're either doing heavy weights a lot of times, or we're doing just jumps and plyometrics and unloaded things a lot of times, right. or you find somewhere in the middle of a medium weight where you're doing just muscle growth. So um, there's a lot to be said about this graph. There's a lot to be said about the the nuances in it, but if you're looking at it, the high side of force, think about that absolute strength as like about, you know, 90 to 100% of your 1RM and towards the middle when we're talking about speed strength somewhere in there, we're talking like, you know, 20, 30, 40% 1RM. Mm -hmm. um, and then even at the very bottom speed, speed down there, I'm thinking unloaded, uh, maybe even assisted type movements where I'm, I'm really trying to get maximum speed 
And we know based on this graph, the heavier something is, the slower it moves and the lighter is the faster it moves. So a uh, really good tool for, for specificity and training exactly what we're looking for. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And, and you said unloaded, you use that word, you know, pure speed is unloaded speed, you know, getting up the track, getting up the basketball court on a fast break, that type of stuff. So I like that you brought that up um, <clears throat> to show one, one uh, uh, variable or, or one example um, let's see if I can find it. Where did I put that thing? Oh yeah, it's, it's over here. Um, again, if you go back to the strength curve and we're gonna get to some more of these later, um, but uh, gosh, where'd it go? So remember we have absolute strength. Again, lifting a big heavy you know, deadlift and it takes you five seconds to get up to the top. It's, it's really slow, okay? But you are applying a bigger force. And that is and does play into your speed, which we'll get to in a second. Um, but again, going back to the, these are difference, uh, these are differences, strength, speed, and speed strength. Um, and you can't use them interchangeably. Um, and when I was writing this down, the first thing I thought of was, um, here's one of my, my athletes, uh, Agardis, um, who plays uh, in a very good team uh, in Russia. Um, this was him preparing for the season two years ago. Uh, this would be more strength speed, okay? He's moving a weight, a very heavy weight, but the goal is still to move it as fast as possible. Um, this is not speed strength. This is a part of that continuum, yet it is not speed strength. Um, so we're gonna get into that. And, and I wanna share a story first. Um, <clears throat> why is that strength important? Sean and I, we, we've talked and, and both of us adore, we love the science and the, um, uh, all of the, the things that we have gleaned from Dr. Yuri Berkoshansky, okay? <laughs> Every, every time I bring him up, you get a smile on your face. Uh, Dr. Yuri Verkoshansky is, is affectionately known as the father of plyometrics. Um, he basically invented or created the depth jump and, and, and realized it to be such an impactful thing for athletes and performance and power and vertical jump and all these things. Um, Dr. Yuri Verkoshansky was a Olympic medalist um, in rowing for uh, Russia back in the late 50s, early 60s. Um, and a, an athlete came to him training for the 1964 Olympics. And this is really important because this really set the groundwork for modern strength and conditioning. But in 1964, this javelin thrower named Mihaela was uh, without a coach. Her coach left her, abandoned her. I don't know the whole story, but Verkoshansky said, I'm going to train you. And he trained her for almost the entire year working on maximal strength. And literally other coaches were laughing at, at uh, Verkoshansky. They were laughing at Dr. Yuri. They said, this is stupid. Um, that javelin is a very fast, powerful movement. And all the other coaches, all the other strength coaches at the time and performance coaches, they were focused on power. They were focused on fast movements and things like that. Verkoshansky thought, if I can get this girl as strong as possible, and then before the meet, focus on that power, I can probably transfer that force that she's applying into that power, into that speed. And lo and behold, uh, in 1964 at the Olympics, she set an Olympic record on her very first throw. <laughs> so she gets up to that, you know, the, the event and she's on the field and she launches that thing, Olympic record, goes on to win the gold medal. So um, that really changed a lot in our industry. And as an athlete, that should tell you that strength is really important. Um, before thinking about speed. And as basketball players, I didn't pull up any videos, but because I, I rag on them enough, but the, the, the ladder drills and the little cone things and all these different footwork things that, that a lot of basketball players are doing nowadays, I'm sorry, but it's just bullshit. It's not going to get you faster like the things we're going to talk about today. Um, it, it's just not. And it's not going to make you faster at all. It's going to make you really, really damn good at doing that specific ladder drill. Now, if you're really young, like prepubescent, like eight, nine, 10, 11 years old, yes, it might help with some coordination. It might help with some uh, you know, cognitive abilities and, and, a, and spatial awareness with your feet. But it, you know, as an 18-year-old, as a 25-year-old, as a 30-year-old professional athlete, college athlete, college basketball player, it's not going to make you faster. So, Sean, uh, I'm going to turn it over to you because the very first way that I like to develop speed strength, and I know you do too, um, so I'm not putting words in your mouth, is uh, the Olympic lifts. 
right? Absolutely. So, so what I want to go on is, um, again, talking about the Olympic lifts and why those are very important for speed strength. And for me as a coach, um, it's my number one go-to when I'm wanting to convert someone's strength into speed. Um, and, and if anybody follows Sean on, on Instagram, uh, his Instagram handle is Sean does strength with an underscore under each word or before each word. Um, his whole Instagram is basically his fitness blog and he's an Olympic lifter and he's a very good Olympic lifter. You can call it weightlifting if you want. Um, but, um, but, but he's a, he has a knack for these things. So I want him to kind of just talk about what is Olympic lifting? How does it get you prepared for speed? How does it translate your strength into speed and all those things? Go ahead, Sean. Yeah, I love it. Thanks, Phil. Uh, love Olympic lifts. So what are they? First, we're thinking um, the clean and jerk and the snatch and their variants. So that includes clean pulls, push presses, um, hang cleans, hang power cleans, snatches, power snatches. Um, basically, they're explosive ground-based power movements. Um, and so learning how to snatch clean and jerk can improve your, uh, can improve your performance in sport um, by basically consolidating fundamental movement patterns. Um, that apply to general overall um, athleticism. So we can translate some of the local motor skills of a ground-based triple extension that transfers to jumping, running, and sprinting. So if that's you know prevalent in your sport, which most sports include some running, jumping, and sprinting, the, the Olympic lifts are gonna be good for you. The thing that's special about the Olympic lifts is we're trying to lift maximum weight as fast as possible. So if we're looking at that curve, um, it's kind of special, it, does, it falls, sort of on that speed strength curve, but it's also a higher one RM than my typical lifts because my one RM for an Olympic lift is it's, it's speed and strength uh, put together. And so um, we're talking about making well-rounded athletes. We're talking about using triple extension. And Phil, if you go ahead and uh, pull up that chart for me on the ground-based power in the Olympic lifts, and we'll compare those power numbers to traditional lifts. Um, let's see. Oh, I remember it's in internet. Cool. All right. Give me one second. It's coming up. Share screen. There. Perfect. So let's pull it up nice and big. So along with training, you know, balance, coordination, uh, and movement quality, uh, we are also looking at this thing called rate of force development. So rate of force development is how quickly you're developing your force into the ground or your speed. And so since an Olympic movement is a max speed, max effort lift, we're increasing our rate of force development uh, more than we would be in traditional lifts. So if I'm over here, I'm looking at the back squat, for instance, um, I'm looking at my peak forces on a back squat at about 2,600 or so newtons. And then the rate of force development is only about 5,000 uh, newtons, and that's per second. So when I compare 5,000 newtons of force per second compared to like a hang, uh, like a mid-thigh power clean, which is about 15,000 newtons per second. So I'm getting about three times more force generated faster than I would be on a regular back squat. Same with a deadlift. It's only about 1,000 newtons or so per second more than the squat but I'm looking at my mid-thigh clean pull, I'm still about 15,000. So I'm able to put more force into the ground and faster. And if we're looking at you know, locomotor sports movements like sprinting and jumping, we know that these movements only last about a quarter of a second to fully produce that muscular contraction and take off. Yep. So I don't have the time to recruit maximum force like I would on a deadlift. You see a guy grind out a slow, heavy deadlift, that thing might take three seconds. In a sport, the, the play's over. You don't have time to spend letting your body recruit more motor units. If you guys remember, we talked about the size principle of motor unit recruitment, where my body recruits muscle fibers uh, based on demand, and that demand depends on the activity. And so something heavier takes time to recruit along that, along that channel to grab more muscle to work. So the Olympic lifts, essentially, long story short, allow you to skip the... Um, the motor unit recruitment and I jump right away into recruiting my bigger, faster, stronger uh, muscle fibers and at a faster pace from the brain. 
So we know, we know there's only two ways to produce force, right? I'm either um, recruiting more motor units, which is muscular recruitment, or I'm getting more rate coding, which is the signal speed from the brain. And so the Olympic lifts target both of those at the same time. I'm getting a maximal speed impulse to lift that weight fast. And I'm recruiting maximum motor units because it's a heavy weight also. So the Olympic lifts are special in their force and power production. And this translates, like we talked about earlier, it's a ground-based power movement. So it translates to all of our running and jumping type movements. So it, alongside with just the speed and power, the Olympic lifts combine multiple exercises. So I'm combining my deadlift, my front squat, my overhead press, um, overhead squat. So not only do it increase my power, but they also increase my coordination, my balance and stability, and my ability to learn complex movement patterns. So if we're talking from youth um, and athletes developing along, you know, from a youth athlete to an adult athlete, learning the Olympic lifts early will give you a, a higher educated learning palette for new sport movements. Um, you're going to be more coordinated and you're going to be having an easier time learning other physical attributes. So you'll be a more well-rounded athlete um, from the ground up. So I don't know if it's a good time now, Phil, if you want to bring up the uh, Olympic weightlifting growth maturation. Yeah. Do you want to show an example? Like I, maybe from, from your page? Um, um sure like because because i'm i'm looking at it now and so for example if you go back to here let me share my screen again with you because i have a question myself for you and it's 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 interesting to note um where did that go it's interesting to note that the you have this mid-thigh clean pull, this mid-thigh power clean, this mid-thigh clean pull uh, here. These are all higher than a power clean by almost double. And this definitely over double. So I'm interested in the rate of force development of a power clean and why it's so low compared to the hang because power. Because if so, it, it relates to that isometric mid-thigh pull. We're yeah. stronger in the power position, which is above yeah. the knees, than we are yeah. from the floor. So the, the rate of force development, it's a longer movement from the floor to the power position of the clean. So a power clean starts on the ground. Right. And so I'm having to go over the knee, up into the hip, pop, and then catch. So the rate of force development, it's just a longer movement, so it takes longer. And now when you look at that isometric mid-thigh pole, that's one of the strongest movements you can possibly ever perform. You get high rate of force development in one of the strongest force producing positions. And so that translates to the mid thigh power clean, yeah. the mid thigh clean and that hang power clean are all higher because I start and end in what we call the power position, which is that same athletic ready stance. My knees are slightly bent and my shoulders are slightly over my knees. And from that position, I have the greatest recruitment of muscle fibers through uh, the legs. So from the, from the foot and calves up the hamstrings, glutes, and then also into the quads. So because those movements are shorter, they're quicker, they have uh, more uh, biomechanical efficiency. So the joint overlap and the cross bridge overlap is optimal in that power position. So you're going to get the highest forces and highest rate of force development from that power position versus than you would from the ground in the full movement. It's really cool you brought that up because as you're like right when you started talking, I remembered I have a note on this on my notes for this show. Uh, the second pull in Olympic lifts is the most uh, forceful um, uh, training um, part of any exercise anywhere ever. And so yeah. this chart just verifies that. Um, and it just took me to ask you that question and to bring that up. That's really good. So you gave all the science behind it. Basketball players just know that. So the first pull is when you pull a barbell off the ground. The second pull is like Sean talked about from the power position when you then pull it into the catcher overhead. Um, that second pull is the most forceful movement in, uh, in weightlifting. And that uh, second pull is basically from right there. So that's a pretty good, that's a hang power clean. Yeah. So I'm getting that mid thigh position. I'm a little bit lower. I'm like low thigh, but that's one of the most explosive parts of the lift. So you can really overload that hang power clean since you're not having to get the first pull to stretch on the hamstrings from the floor and you're not having to catch it in a full squat. So I really like that hang power clean as a 
heavier version, a heavier, faster version. Well, it won't be as fast, but a, a heavier version to train more of that. It's a little bit more of the strength speed stuff. So right. when we're talking Olympic lifts, guys, it's super important to differentiate the difference between the clean pull and the snatch pull. Um, the clean and jerk is technically two movements from the ground to the shoulder and then from the shoulder overhead uh, versus the snatch. So the snatch is a single movement. So when we're developing, perfect. Yep. So when we're, de- that was my PR. So when we're <laughs> developing this, the, the systems, we know that the snatch, it's one piece and it's a faster movement. So the snatch pulls and snatch variants are more the speed style training for using those variants will train more speed characteristics versus training the clean characteristics. Well, you can load it a little bit more. So we'll get a little bit more of the power and strength characteristics out of those. Yeah. So using the different variants. You you wanted this here? Um, I think we moved on. I was going to show the growth maturation cycle from the Olympic lifting, starting from a young age, how we're getting like general coordination, that one, yeah. And then as we learn to train, we can start transferring the coordination into speed, power, and agility. And then once I'm older, I'm in my like prepubescent high school age, I'm getting more general strength. And then as I'm 16, 21, I'm getting more of those competition styles. So this shows just the general development from youth to adulthood on how the Olympic lifts can be used in your training. You know, I heard too, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a disciple, if you want to say, of uh, Coach Charles Poliquin. Uh, and uh, one of his things that he always said was speed is mostly developed here. I've heard him say eight to 10 years old. Um, this nine to 12 makes sense. I know everyone grow, learns at a different age or, or matures at a different age, but he always said between the ages of eight and 10 is when speed is mostly developed. Um, so, so this is, this is a really cool, um, tie in. really cool graph, Sean. Yeah. So it's, it, we're, we're basically using explosive plyometric type movements that, uh, develop the physical attributes through triple extension rate of force development, um, and using heavy weights fast to develop speed and power. Yeah. So Olympic weightlifting is, is my favorite. Um, the caveat to this is obviously learning the movement enough to use it for speed and power so a lot of people the proficiency of it if you're not good at doing the movement you don't overload a bad pattern so we got to make sure the movement pattern or the lift skill is there before i start adding a lot of weight and adding a lot of speed to a movement so that's the caveat with olympic lifting is a lot of people say is it worth the time to learn i say if you have the time absolutely if you don't have the time then some of the variants work really well like we discussed like the I think we'll get into a little bit on the bottom, right? It's the specifics of the movements towards the end. Let's uh, let's throw down a little bit here. Let's disagree because I, I have a feeling where I'm about to disagree with you. Um, and I know, so Verko Shansky, he, he really enjoyed and wanted uh, to build strength before moving into that power block, before moving into that speed strength in the Olympic lifts. Um, and so he would, he had a six week typically block of those Olympic lifts right before competition, but before that, he always had a strength block. Um, again, I just said, you know, I, I follow Charles Poliquin and his teachings. Um, he always said three weeks is the most you need to transfer strength into speed using the Olympic lift. So his whole thing is get, uh, get hella strong as long as possible. And then, you know, if you're gearing up for the, the basketball season or for the Olympics or for whatever, um, obviously there's maybe some time resting, but um, you only need three weeks to convert that strength into speed. And I know you really like the Olympic lifts, the weightlifting, you do it all year. Um, and I know your volume goes up and down and you're, you're really good with programming, but um, what do you think on a practical level, basketball players, they might have 12 weeks. If they're lucky, they'll have 16 weeks. They a lot of times have less than 12 weeks, eight weeks in the off season. I actually, um, I fully agree with you. I think strength is the mother of all qualities. You need to be strong first. I want to increase my maximal strength so that I have more force to pull from when I'm trying to move things fast. So um, I want to increase my force maximum or my force in optimal positions and optimal um optimal situations so that when I do speed stuff, I have a higher level of strength to start pulling my speed out of. And so the, the fun adage is you can't shoot a cannon out of a canoe. Yeah. Um, and so that means I need to be strong and I need to be stable and I need things to 
have stiffness to them before I can really use them as an anchor to pull against. Um, and so I, I agree with you fully. I think I use Olympic lifting as a sport. And so I train my sport year round the same way basketball players are in practice year round. So my Olympic lifts, it, it's funny because the training for my sport is the same as my sport. So I'm getting a 100% transfer of practice to my sport or training the sport. Cause as coaches, as strength coaches, we're always trying to, um, make sure that the training we do in the gym transfers to your sport on the field or on the court. And yeah. so with Olympic lifting, it is an Olympic sport in and of its own self. So doing the cleans and jerks and snatches year round is like your sports practice. Um, but to your point, I, I agree with you. We would do heavy loads. Uh, like if I'm prepping for a competition, it's the same way you prep for a game. So we do heavier stuff. And then as we get closer to competition, probably about that same uh, two, three weeks out, then the weights get really light and the speed starts to develop. If you will, Phil, I just sent you a text message. Will you pull up that last thing I sent you on text? So this will actually help that point sink in just a little further. What it's going to show is. Go ahead, sorry. Oh, it said this will help that point sink in a little further. It shows the, um, the dissipation of the adaptation we've been working on. So if I'm looking at this, so I'm looking at my aerobic endurance takes about 30 days to start to see the residual training effect go away. So yeah. I have 30 days. I can keep, basically I can keep my aerobic training adaptations for about 30 days before I start to, to lose a lot of them. The next is right there. You see maximal strength. I keep max, my maximal strength for about a month. Uh, this is like maybe with a five to 10% drop off um, for about a month. But as I start working down and I'm looking at, you know, glycolytic endurance, strength endurance. And at the very bottom, if you look at maximal speed, maximal speed is the very first thing you lose when you stop training it. So to Phil's point, it, Coach Phil's point, it doesn't make sense to train speed year round like that, maximal speed. Let me take that back, maximal speed year round, because we know after a week or so, if I don't do that, I'm, I'm, losing, I'm losing that speed uh, characteristic. So when we're talking about peaking, and training for a particular performance, the last thing I'm going to do is my speed stuff because I want to make sure I've captured all of my explosive movements um, closest to my competition. So I'm, I'm strong and fast and explosive nearest my point of competition. So I'm usually doing heavy stuff first. I build up a good base and then I start transferring that heavy stuff into more explosive speed stuff towards the end. And the science is there. We're not going to go into the different math equations and all you math nerds out there can can you know, comment below and do that for us. But obviously the force comes into play, obviously with uh, the Olympic lift. So the, the greater force we can apply, the faster potentially you have to move. So strength is, is hugely important. And like Coach Paulkin always said too, the Olympic lifts are a verifier or a validation of how good your program was throughout the year. So if you do an off season program of six weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, whatever amount of time you have, and those final two to four weeks are focused on speed strength and Olympic lifts and getting real fast. Um, they will tell you how good your program was in the off season by how much you can lift and how fast you can lift it. Sean, we gotta, we gotta keep moving, but I, I wanna get back to that. But one more thing on the topic, I'd love for you to share, what, is, what are one to two exercises that you know a basketball player who isn't familiar with the Olympic lifts, maybe they messed around with them in college and maybe they messed around with them a little bit on their own, watched a YouTube video or something, but what, what are one to two intro lifts that they can do to, to put into their program to get faster and transfer their strength into speed? Yeah, usually uh, if, you've, if, you've, if you're competent and comfortable with your deadlifts, RDLs, like front squats, overhead presses, things like that, and you've got those basic barbell movements down, I think my, my two that I would go to are probably the high pole, the hang high pole. So starting in that hang position, because as we noted, that hang position generates more rate of force development and more power. Um, I'd probably go with a clean, a clean high pole. So a hang high pole for, with a clean grip. Uh, it's going to give me, it's going to give me all the power generation off the floor in that second pole without forcing me to catch the, and absorb the load. Right. Uh, most people don't have the prerequisite flexibility to catch a front squat. And right. so if my goal is ground-based power, then I'm going to use the clean, the, the mid-thigh clean pole as my ground-based power. And I'll just right. cut out that second half of that squat. That's awesome. um, so, so that's going to get us the most force generation off the ground. 
Um, the next one that I like would probably be a push press. Um, so I got the weight rested on my, my shoulders right in here. I'm going to dip and drive. And so at that point, that dip and drive, I'm transferring energy from my legs all the way up through the kinetic chain into my arms. And so that'll tell me if I'm sturdy and rigid through my feet, hips, trunks, ankle, core, and my shoulders. And I'm, I'm, if I get a really poor transfer of energy, you won't be able to lift the same amount of weight. So when we're talking about ground-based power movements, we need them to transfer a sport. I need to be able to stiffen up my body so I can transfer leg power to maybe it's throwing power or shooting power or acceleration power one direction or the next. But I want to be able to apply force and have it transfer to the rest of my body. I just made a note. We should do a video on just those two exercises and break them down and talk about how to get them into your into a program for, for cool. some of these uh, basketball players. I think that'd be a really good idea. Then dumbbell um, versions too work well, like a dumbbell push press. If you're just in yeah. here, a dip and drive, I'm still transferring force, transferring energy. Right. It's an Olympic variant, but it's just an easier position. And yeah. you have the risk. And, and right now in the world with COVID, uh, you know, the, the Wuhan virus is really kind of messing people up in terms of getting into a gym. So maybe they only have a couple dumbbells. Maybe they can't, sure. they don't have barbells and, you know, jerk blocks and racks and all these things. Um, so we, we really talked a lot about Olympic lifting and I wanted to because that is bar none for me and it sounds like for you too, how to develop speed strength. Um, let's talk about my second favorite, which is accommodated resistance. And accommodating resistance is basically you have a barbell and you attach bands, you attach chains to it. So if you think about it, I'll just show you an example. I have it, I have it here already. Um, so here's another uh, client of mine, Scott. Uh, this was leading up to um, some professional tryouts that he had. And there he is really trying to drive up fast. Um, and as you can tell with the bands, obviously as he stands up, the bands get tighter, so to speak. They, they get stretched. So if he doesn't go as hard as he can, and you can see the expression on his face, if he doesn't move with, with as much intention as possible, he's not getting to the top. And the same thing goes for chains. If you're squatting, uh, bench pressing, and you have chains, obviously, as you lower the bar down, more of those links in the chain get on the ground. So as you then push the weight up, more chains, uh, more links in the chain leave the ground, thus essentially making the bar heavier. Um, and it's the, the same goes for Scott here. So at the very bottom, it doesn't feel as heavy as it does at the top because of those bands pulling down. So um, this is called accommodating resistance. And if you have access, again, this was before we had good squat racks with pins, which we do now. So, you know, we're just kind of rigging it to make it work for us. But um, if you have chains, if you have access to bands, this is a really good way um, to, to turn strength into speed. And I would, and video's moving a little slow, but I would say maybe I should have cut them off even one, one rep before that. Cause again, we're focused on velocity of movement, 1.3, 1.4 meters per second for speed strength. Um, accommodating resistance is also really good because as you can see, he's still doing a deadlift. He's not doing a clean pull or, or one of these, some of these other uh, movements that Sean was just talking about. So I think from a uh, neurological and from a learning perspective, it, they're, they're easier. So I always put these in before the Olympic lifts to try to train them to just move with as much intention and with as much speed as possible. Sean, go ahead. I see you. Um, yeah, yeah. So accommodated resistance is awesome. Absolutely love it. Uh, like Phil said, the bands and chains, the weight gets heavier at the top. Okay. And so why that makes you more powerful is power is literally a math formula. So power equals force times velocity. And so with that formula, if I move at a constant velocity, but I've increased my force as the exercise continues, I've increased one of those two variables that equal power. Yeah. So my power is increasing as I'm doing my lift. I have to recruit more motor units and faster, like Phil said, or else I'm not going to get to the top of the lift. But because I'm increasing one of those variables as the lift rises, I have to subconsciously or internally increase my movement velocity, my movement speed to stay at a constant speed. Because if I didn't increase my movement speed, I would actually slow down as the lift comes and that force would overcome me. And so it's a power exercise because the force gets heavier 
And in order to maintain my constant speed, I have to move faster because the load got heavier. So you're actually, even though it doesn't look like you're accelerating um, in visual speed, your body mechanics and your muscle contraction velocities are accelerating you through that lift. Love it. So that's contra or, uh, whoa, that's accommodating resistance. So we have Olympic lifts. We have accommodating resistance. Again, if you're if you're training and you've never done either, start with the accommodating resistance if you have the uh, access to chains and bands. Um, for the reasons Sean said, um, the third one. We love this one too. Contrast training. Um, now I'm going to give you an example. Again, this is uh, was not prepared. Um, but this was from my workout just today. Now, contrast training, you essentially take, uh, you, you want to move a heavy object really fast or move a heavy object. And what that does is it activates or potentiates the nervous system. Um, and so then we go and move a, a lighter implement. And then that lighter implement theoretically should move faster because our nervous system was just jacked up. Now, there's a lot of different you know, I say jacked up, amped up, whatever you want to say. I believe the, yeah. Anyway, so so that's what we're talking about with contrast training. Um, you'll see a lot of throws in this. Um, so you do a bench press and then you go and do a med ball throw. Um, you could do jumps here, which we'll get into plyometrics in a second, where you'll do a back squat into a jump, things like that. Um, but this is one of my favorites. And I've actually, um, I'm really glad that my coach uh, has put this into my program um, because one, it was really fun. I, you know, this is me as a 41 year old with a bum knee right now, trying to, you know, muscle this up. So it's about hundred kilos. Um, I'll go three, or, uh, sorry, three cleans. That one felt good, Sean. I remember that last one. I was like, oh, Sean would have been proud of that one. Um, and I've never done this exercise before. So this is brand new to me. It's a narrow grip snatch pull, uh, power snatch from the mid thigh. Um, so again, very light implement, and I'm just trying to move it as fast as I can. I only had 10 seconds rest in between. Uh, again, I've never done this lift. It's not very technical. Um, or, sorry, it is very technical. I'm not very good at it. <laughs> um, so a narrow grip power snatch uh, from the mid thigh. Again, contrast training. You take a heavy weight or I take a heavier um, exercise and you follow it with a very light exercise going for speed on the second exercise. And Sean, can you talk about, because like this program that I just showed, there's only 10 seconds in between. And I like 10, 15, 20, maybe 30 seconds. But a lot of research shows three minutes, four minutes is ideal. So you do a heavy back squat, you wait three minutes, and then you go and jump. Problem is, if you want to get eight sets in, or if you want to get six sets of three, nobody has a three hour block to train. So how do you do and how do you accommodate both of those things? Yeah, I think that's definitely, um, it's gonna come down to your like training level, right? So we have to, so we're gonna have fatigue back up a little bit. The whole point of this is to make the second exercise faster than it would normally be. So yeah. Phil's talking about potentiation. If you heard of PAP or post-activation potentiation, essentially what you're doing is you lift that heavy weight and inside your body, inside the muscle proteins, uh, one of the muscle proteins has been added. It's a phosphate group. You get added to the protein. Essentially, it puts the muscles closer together. When the muscle contracts, it contracts faster than it normally would because you've dumped a whole bunch of calcium in there and you got the uh, nervous system ramped up. So the contraction speed is supposed to be faster on your second lift. So the caveat to this is a couple things. Um, we want to make sure that I don't have a high level of fatigue from, from the exercise I just did, but I also want to make sure that I can keep the potentiation effect from the exercise that I just did. Right. So this one, I've kind of trailed off on my contrast training. Um, and I especially don't use it for youth. I would rather them do the plyometric and then do the heavy, because if you're not experienced with this and you're a lower level lifter, you're going to have too much fatigue from the first heavy exercise that when you go and do your power exercise, you're actually going to be moving slower than you would had you rested longer. And so we need to be able to find that crossover point where I'm no longer fatigued from the heavy and I still have a potentiation effect from the heavy. So I, I've looked into this. I did a lot of research on this. This was my grad thesis. It was on PAP and Phil's right. Like 
depending on the group and the level of expertise in your training, it might be two, three, four minutes before the fatigue is gone so that you can actually maximize your, uh, your potentiated lift. So I've kind of gotten away from the contrast training. Um, I find if I really want to maximize it, I don't have the time to do it in the hour long session that we're training our clients. Right. Um, instead, I use a little bit more like um, what I'd call cluster setting. So I do a plyometric and I would do a couple of reps with a decent break, a couple of reps and a decent break and a couple of reps and a decent break. The goal is to do it so that I'm not fatigued from set to the, from one rep to the next, because if I'm trying to increase my power, every rep that I do needs to be at maximum power. And so if I did a, a 10 jump squats and my goal was to get explosive, I probably got explosive on the first three or four and then fatigue set in so that every jump squat looks as a lower force output on that graph. And after number four, maybe number five, if you're a really good athlete, you're really just conditioning at that point and you're no longer building power. So I try to keep all the plyometrics and all the explosive stuff like under five reps, usually three to four is about the peak. But if you cluster set with, Maybe you do, uh, I mean, I've done 10 sets of two um, at like a 30 second rest between. So it's two reps, not very fatiguing. And you get enough rest to recuperate all the like metabolic, all the other, you know, waste product and stuff. So um, contrast, if there's a caveat to contrast training, you just want to make sure that you're, you're rested before you jump into your fast movement so it can be fast. I didn't know you did your uh, thesis, master's thesis on PAP. That's kind of cool. I didn't finish it on PAP. I started doing it on PAP and I did oh. my lit review and I, I gathered all the research for it, but I was working a full-time job at the time. So I didn't, um, I wasn't able to take the time to run my testing. Uh. So I opted then for a project and I did the project instead, but I was ready for it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you mentioned plyo, so let's get into it. So our, our first yep. speed strength favorite, bar none, Olympic lifting, weightlifting. Second, um, uh, accommodating resistance. Third, uh, is that contrast training that we talked about? Mm -hmm. Third, contrast training. Um, fourth, plyometrics, jumping, things like that. Go ahead. Let's have you kick this one off. Uh, okay. So plyometrics. So if we talked about unloaded strength or unloaded speed being true speed, I like plyometrics because plyometrics is you moving your body on whatever court or field you play on. Yeah. Um, so if we're talking about moving fast and being explosive, an unloaded movement is your body. It's closest to the relative strength that you're going to be using. I tend to use plyometrics last in our system. So plyos tend to be uh, one of the last things we'll do because it's one of the fastest things we can do. And I say one of because the next thing we'll talk about will be even faster than plyometrics. But uh, plyometrics is Russian for um, shock training or jump training. And what we're basically doing with plyometrics is we're increasing the stretch reflex of a jump. So when I go down, I'm going to have an eccentric phase. I'm going to have that stretch shortening cycle kick on. It's a neurological response that contracts muscle based off a rapid stretch. And then I get an, a, an additional kick or an additional burst of power on my way up. So for a true plyometric, it has to go from a stretch to a contraction. So if I'm doing a pause squat to a jump, that's not a true plyometric because there was no stretch reflex and there was no um, bounce essentially. So this is like bounce training. Um, but yeah, I mean, vertical jumps, repeated vertical jumps, depth jumps, jumps over hurdles, jumps over cones, lateral jumps, whatever way you want to jump, like depth jumps, like we talked about. Um, I mean, even like a counter movement jump is still a plyometric. So I'm stretching at the hips. So like a swing and a jump, or if I'm jumping repeatedly over cones, um, they all kind of have their own little nuances, whether or not I'm uh, going from a bigger stretch to a smaller stretch, but there's ways to overload. But essentially um, we're using plyometrics as one of the fastest pieces of movement um, that I can use. And it's one of the most relative to sport because it's my body that I'm producing the force on. So it's faster. It's, it's more applicable to sport. Um, and again, you gotta be careful with plyos because it is like shock training and that rapid eccentric stretch cycle. If we do too many, we can actually damage the system. So um, again, this is one of those low volume, I'm talking like for beginners, maybe 60 contacts, 60 jumps in a training session, right. or, um, and if you're in advance, maybe 80 jumps in a training session, but, um, go ahead. So you got, you got supplies here. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and, and I've seen that with the contacts and I'm going to, you know, don't quote me on this, but I think you're spot on with about 60 ground contacts for, for I a sent young. you a, a plyo PDF. 
I okay. think it'll have I'll for, pull it up for a young athlete. And I've seen it advanced is up to about 300, but I think that's over the course of a week. I think um, so. Yeah. Let me pull up so, that chart. Yeah. And it's really important to know that because plyometrics are really, really uh, uh, stressful on your body. So here's an example. Um, a hurdle jump is essentially um, a version of the depth jump that Dr. Yerberkoshansky <clears throat> popularized, um, where you would jump off a box and land on, on, a, on a taller box. Um, but this is really um, incorporating that stretch cycle, jumping, uh, minimizing the ground contact, landing and jumping right up. Let's watch one more time. This is uh, another client of mine, uh, Donatus Sabetskis, who's, uh, who's Lithuanian, another pro player, and uh, looking great there with his uh, abilities jumping over a hurdle. Um, Let's I got a couple extra points if you want. I can add a couple things here. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so with plyos, we want to consider the level of impact because like we talked about, it, shock training, it can be detrimental. But um, so we have low impact, medium impact and high impact. And so you've probably all seen a box jump, right? The point of a box jump is to reduce the landing impact mm -hmm. so that I'm not stressed and fatigued from my jump. The height of a box is irrelevant on, and only for reducing landing impact. So if I did a max effort vertical jump and I jumped 30 inches in the air and I land, I have just overcome a lot of negative eccentric forces that are gonna fatigue me for next jumps. So a box jump, you jump on the box to reduce the impact. So a box jump is a low impact plyometric. And then we have medium impact plyometrics where I'm maybe doing over short hurdles. And then a high impact plyometric would be something like we just showed where it's a very high hurdle jump or I'm stepping off of a high box and I'm letting gravity accelerate my body. And now I've added more weight to my jump. So when we're starting plyometrics, a box jump is a good place to start. A meet, that would be a low impact. A medium impact would be small hurdles. And then a high impact would be a depth drop, jumping off a box and then bouncing. Um, so impacts are considered. Um, um, and then contacts. So you're gonna have high, you're gonna be able to do higher number of contacts on your low impact. You're going to do a even uh, less number of contacts for your medium impact and then even lower numbers. So at a super advanced athlete, maybe 80 to 100 contacts. I think this is weekly also. Um, this is weekly contacts. So if you're doing five sets of 10 on your plyometrics, you just soaked up about half your week on, on contacts, right? So there's some programming and stuff. Come to us, talk to us. We'll help you out. Um, there's also one other thing I want to consider too when we're talking about jumps is sometimes having a longer ground contact will produce a higher jump. And so I kind of break these down. I heard another coach uh, talk about it, but um, jumping like a tiger and jumping like a gazelle. So jumping mm -hmm. like a gazelle is going to be our very quick, rapid ground contacts. The ground is lava. I'm almost telling you to jump before you've landed. So it's pop, right. pop, 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 pop. Um, so that's going to be a lower time, a faster recruitment. Some people for like, let's say your penultimate jumper, when you're going to do a dunk, you come a lot of speed come in. You're going to have a longer ground contact before you actually hit your plyometric. So we mm -hmm. want to be training both contacts. Um, and then this is also relatable to sprinting speed. So if I start my sprint, I'm on the ground a little longer as I overcome inertia, but I'm also at the top end of my sprint. I'm, I'm on the ground for a much shorter time. So there's really two types of ground contacts we're looking for. And the tiger jump is a little bit, the tiger style is a little bit longer ground contact, but much more force application versus that gazelle style is very rapid, almost no ground contact, but it's, I might not be getting as high, but I'm getting quick. So one is more power, height and distance. And then one is more quick pace speed. Um, and so training for those is a little bit different, but it's important to note that those are two different kinds of, uh, like plyometric style jumps that whole crouching tiger <laughs> idea just sitting there waiting and it's right waiting to pounce it's a little different then yeah um so we covered those those things and those are the, our, our our favorite ways i hope they help um but if you think about it and again we know that 80 percent of basketball is played inside of five meters anything that you do that is productive on the court if you think about just the distance from the three-point line to the basket, like 
Most of the times you're starting your drives from at, at the most there. So everything is done within five meters. So all of these things are really generated to get you um, fast, uh, quick acceleration, powerful, things like that. Um, but what about outside of that five meters? And ideally, it's even outside of 10 yards, this next point I'm gonna bring up because that um, 10 yard dash or maybe in Europe it's a 10 meter dash, but it, that's a test of your acceleration, right? After that, some other properties kick in, uh, including stride length. And one thing that's going to limit your stride length is hamstring uh, tightness in the sagittal plane. And so I just wanted to bring this up because we're talking speed. So um, if you're an athlete, this obviously is a 90 degree angle. Um, that is the norm for general population in terms of passive hamstring. So can you lift your leg to 90 degrees? An athlete should actually be about here, 110 to 120 degrees is ideal. And if you turn this guy on his side, it might be a little bit awkward, but it, it, you, can, you can imagine a running stride, right? So his leg is going forward. If you can imagine the hamstring here, again, muscles are just, if you think about muscles, all they do is they pull on bone. There's an, an, an origin and an attachment and they stretch and they contract, right? So if it can't stretch far, it's going to limit his stride length. It's going to make him slower outside of 10 yards. So if your hamstrings are tight in the sagittal plane, so if, just think a straightforward run, um, you will not be able to get up the court as quick as you can uh, if, as if you had um, uh, more mobile hamstrings. Now, a lot of people and people have, since I made this uh, elite training for basketball group, they talk about stretching, stretching, stretching. I'm sorry, but stretching doesn't do a damn thing to help your mobility. There are many reasons for that, but one of the biggest reasons is your fascia. Your fascia is creating more of the restriction than the actual muscle. So yes, muscle is pliable and it's like stretching rubber, but fascia is more like stretching, trying to stretch a Tupperware lid. And that fascia has wonderful, wonderful memory properties and, 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 and knows the extent of the range of motion that you essentially put it through and it will adapt to that. That's why I'm such a big believer in full range of motion. And I'm a big believer in doing that, not only to get strong through the full range of motion, but also to tell the joints, to tell the muscles, to tell the connective tissue, this is a full range of motion and I need you to go this whole distance. Um, so we need to work through a full range of motion one, but we also need, um, so, so stretching isn't gonna help improve. Um, the, the best way is fascial stretch therapy or FST. And they can really, these, these practitioners, um, and if you just go to um, stretchtowin.com, uh, the Stretch to Win Institute, um, I'm a big believer in fascial stretch therapy. They actually stretch the fascia and not the muscle, which will help to improve mobility in as little as one session. And they can really improve you that fast. Um, the, the, the other way that I really like um, uh, as a, maybe a, a, a very close number two is ART or active release technique. Um, but what we're really trying to do is get someone who knows what they're doing to get in there, to, to stretch the fascia and to get that mobilized so that the uh, joints can then open up to the full range of motion that we want. But if your hamstrings are tight, bottom line, it's gonna slow you down in terms of outside of 10 yards or 10 meters. So if you think fast breaks, getting up the court, um, those tight hamstrings are gonna limit your speed. Sean, do you have anything to add on that one? Yeah, um, this is also the importance of soft tissue, self myofascial release, self MS, uh, MFR, right? So this is why foam rolling is, is so prevalent right now, because I can break up some of the limitations, adhesions and tightnesses in my muscle groups with a foam roll. Um, that soft tissue release is going to allow for um, an acute mobility or an acute flexibility. So for me, one thing that I do almost every session is I foam roll my calves. And I foam roll my lats because I swear, as soon as I foam roll my lats, I can get my bar, I can get my elbows higher to catch the bar in a better position um, almost instantly. I don't stretch my lats a lot. I get plenty of this. I do plenty of things that stretch out my lats, but something that helps me very specifically is, is foam rolling the lat. You get right away an immediate mobility response. Um, so if that's something you guys are struggling with, a particular tightness, in a particular area before you exercise, grab a foam roll, spend 
30 seconds. It doesn't take a lot. You don't need to sit there and grind for five minutes to get that thing to loosen up. It's less than one minute. If you spent more than a minute on an area, you're wasting your time. You're taking too long. So foam roll that area that's tight. If it's a hamstring thing, foam roll the hamstring. If it's an ankle thing, foam roll the calves. Um, but foam rolling is another really good way to increase your mobility almost right away. It's, it's almost instantaneous. I'm a big believer in using a foam roller as um, using a rolling implement um, as firm as possible to where you can still remain relaxed and calm. Because the second that you tense up, the muscle stays tense and it won't be able to, to loosen up. Um, foam rolling um, to me, uh, and this isn't anything against you, Sean, but I think foam rolling needs to be progressed just like uh, exercises should. So your foam rolling implement should go from bigger to smaller and it should go from softer to firmer. Um, that's why I like, that's why I have um, a PVC pipe at my gym. And I think a lot of people who have trained for a long time should use a, a more sturdy implement. A, 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 what am I trying to say? A lacrosse ball, you know, something that's a lot more sturdy, really get in there. And my take on foam rolling is um, find the spots. A golf ball is another great, a great tool. I have those at my gym that, that you can roll on, um, but find the spot. So when you're rolling around, don't just roll up and down, up and down, up and down, but find as you're rolling very slowly, find the spots that are those trigger points that are like kind of makes you squirm or, or kind of is painful. Those are those fascial adhesions that you need to release. So once you find those spots, leave it there. Like Sean said, no longer than 60 seconds, but you'll feel it after even like 30 seconds, that tightness will just really start to open up. Um, so that's kind of my two cents on, on rolling is, is progress it. So if you're not getting any benefit um, or if you haven't tried something firmer, try a, a plumbing pipe, a PVC pipe, try a golf ball, try a lacrosse ball, something a little more firm to really dig into the muscle and don't just roll up and down and around, but find a spot that is, that is, that is just painful and, and awful, um, but sit on that, breathe and stay relaxed and let that uh, adhesion open up. John, we covered a lot. This is our longest podcast to date. Um, we're, we're, we're going on over an hour. Do you have any other uh, last minute tips, things to add? Uh, just one. We promised the good people in our elite basketball training group uh, five ways to increase our power. We skipped our last one, which was overspeed training. Oh, um, go I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit this really quick, guys. So if we talked about Olympic lifts and we talked about accommodated resistance, we talked about contrast training, yeah. we talked about plyometrics. The last one I wanted to mention was overspeed training. Overspeed training is assisted exercises. So an assisted jump. If I tie a rubber band or a loop band on the squat rack and I'm pulling down on it and I do a vertical jump, it pulls me up into the squat rack. Instead of being resisted, it's assisted. And so what this is doing is it's training your central nervous system to, con um, to contract the muscles faster than they normally would be able to given your own body. Another example of this is a downhill run. Make sure it's not a very steep downhill because instead of running faster, you'd be putting on the brakes, like a 5% grade, something really, really, really small um, can work too, where I'm actually having to cycle faster than my body would normally be able to. And so the overspeed stuff, like I said, trains your central nervous system uh, and it trains higher conduction velocities. So the loads are, are even lighter than what we'd normally be, lighter than my actual body weight. I'm making myself lighter to contract faster, more explosively. Um, instead of increasing my rate of force development, I'm now increasing my rate of velocity development, which is way less loaded and way faster. Um, so grab a band, hang on to the band and do some squat jumps, but do three or four, don't go more than that. But if you wanna try overspeed training, that's a really good way to really peak and add, at the very end of your training cycle, not at the end of your training day, you yeah. definitely wanna do those first. Your fastest movements, you want to train first, followed by your heavy movements after that, right? So we work speed. We work for in, in the beginning of our training session, right? So if we're talking all this Olympic lifts and plyos, do your fast movements first when you get to the gym so that you're not tired and fatigued when you try to do those. Otherwise, they won't be very fast when you do them. So practical application, do your, do your fast explosive stuff first. Do your power um, next heavy exercises. Do your strength exercises. Then do your 
bodybuilding exercises, and then do your conditioning. So work from fast to slow, um, and then work from complicated to simple. Yep. So as you guys go in the gym, I think I'll leave you guys with that. I love it. Thanks for bringing up that overspeed. I, I, I missed that one, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, that's, and that's great. Cause most people don't do that. Most people don't, uh, think to, to have that in their, in their program. But again, everything we talked about today, um, like Sean said, these are all peaking plans. These are all peaking things. These are all, um, uh, phases to put in like before the season or, you know, right as you're getting ready to go to an event or a tournament or your season, and a lot of it you can use during the season too to keep your your, your velocity up and things like sure. that. Sure, so. maintenance. All right, Sean. Thanks again. I really appreciate it. How can people find you? SeanDoesStrength.com or SeanDoesStrength on Instagram. SeanDoesStrength has underscores after each word. And you can check me out at Get Part Strength on Instagram or Get Part Strength on YouTube. I am bringing out a lot more videos nowadays. And uh, feel free, please check us out, uh, Elite Training for Basketball. If you're hearing this on the podcast side of things, Elite Training for Basketball on Facebook. Um, it's our private group. And those of you in the Elite Training for Basketball group already listening live or later, please comment below. Ask any questions. We'd love to hear them and we'd be happy to answer them and then, uh, regarding how to change your, how to turn your strength into speed. Sean, until next week, then, thank you. We'll see yeah, you. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. All right, you guys. Have a good day. Yep. Bye. Woo! <laughs>